G'day everyone, welcome back to the Talking Leadership podcast series and today we continue our discussion regarding leadership in the military context and before we get started, obviously I'd like to thank my podcast co-host Ben Deverson for joining us. Ben, thank you for being here. Thanks mate, good to see you again Eric. Thank you sir. Today's guest is the Managing Director of Veteran Support Force and he brings 16 years of experience in the military with over 100 combat missions. Can I welcome to the podcast Heston Russell, how are you mate? Hey, gentlemen. Very good. Thank you for having me on. Look, this is this is great. Thank you for agreeing to speak with us, mate. And this is an ongoing series and one of the drivers for me to make sure we keep talking with people who are either serving or, or uh, veterans is I want to get a better understanding of leadership and what does that look like between the the, the world of the military and civilian life and what can we, we learn from your journey between those two worlds. And I'm sure there's some uh, fundamental lessons there that you can share with us. So hope, hopefully we can tease some of that out of your experience, mate. Sure. I might hand over to Ben to do the intro and I've got one, one thing I want to ask you and we'll do this later in the podcast, but there's a quote on your website attributed to your dad that I want to talk about when it comes yeah. to leadership. I think you know the, the quote that I'm talking about, but we'll, we'll get to that later. Ben, over to you, my friend. Great. Thanks, Eric Heston, mate. Great to have you on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation for a very long time. I have followed you for many years. We are connected on LinkedIn, as you know, and have met. But I just want to say two things, two thank yous. One, thank you for your service. And two, thank you for what you're doing now. And I think that's a really important thing in your role, but equally your public role in relation to veteran support force, the way you've been advocating for veterans, particularly in, in facing a, let's just say, a bit of a tough environment in the media of, of late. We might cover a bit of that a little bit in, in our podcast, but I will say this as well. I do go rogue, so I might ask a question. It's not on the list, but uh, I'm sure as we talked about off, off camera, we might uh, do a bit of shooting from the hip. Yeah, I love it. Happy. Well, Ben, thank you for your service too, as we we discovered online you were a graduate 10 years before me and I don't take that lightly because as you know and a lot of the motivation I get these days from supporting our community once you once you join that community once you realize that purpose and that level of inspiration you know service never leaves us no matter how much we try so thank you and thank you again for you and Eric for actually having these conversations I don't think we talk about leadership enough objectively as opposed to simply philosophically great point mate thank you I appreciate that look let's get into it so Heston let's talk about your background and again, focusing on leadership. So what was the beginning of your leadership pathway? To be honest, the beginning of my leadership pathway was my first year at ADFA. Uh, you know, I graduated high school uh, at the end of 2002. Uh, so I was 17 years old and I went straight into the Defence Force Academy at the age of 17. And prior to that, you know, I'd always known that I wanted to I wanted to be better. You know, I was brought up in a military family, five generations of my family were in the military. And my dad, I grew up around the married quarters. I grew up around other defense families. And those people in my life that I saw around me that had that confidence and those attributes and that communication, you know, I was, I was shy. I was unpopular at school. I didn't necessarily like who I was. I struggled with my weight for a while, all these sort of things. And the military for me was this aspirational thing that I wanted to go and really have a clean slate and, you know, actually learn how to be a leader. Um, because I knew that I had a lot of enthusiasm. I had a lot of potential, you know, I had a lot of passion and drive to help other people, particularly coming from a life of myself, never really feeling truly valued in that social setting, knowing that I could do so much more, but never got the jobs, never got the opportunities, never got the sports captain, never got all that sort of stuff. And it never came from a place of entitlement. It came from a place of wanting to actually train myself to be the best that I could be. And finally, uh, through ADFA, I actually got 
professionally taught what leadership actually was, as opposed to this, you know, metaphorical or imagination of just, you know, the big jawline, the big chest, you know, follow me, hip, hip, all that good stuff. You actually learned it um, theoretically and then applied it, applied it practically and you got surrounded by a, an all immersive culture that was geared towards that professional development of your leadership quality. So yeah, ADFA was the, the start for me. It's an interesting point you make. And we've, we've done this before, Eric, with other guests that both myself and the guests talk about being former, you know, men and women of the Australian Defence Force and sorry, overseas uh, Defence Forces, where we're actually taught the theory of leadership. And I'm sure, Hessen, you'd remember the actual pamphlet we were given, uh, lead, the leadership pamphlet at Duntroon, which was, I remember it being a small grey book that we all read and we all had to reference in our in our assignments and papers we had to write on leadership. And it's something that I really do notice in the civilian world that there isn't a book. I mean, we've all got books in our in our office that talk about leadership and, you know, we all probably subscribe to podcasts with people like Simon Sinek and, you know, Good to Great and Jim Collins and all sorts of stuff, but there isn't really a book, is there? No, the best form of leadership is leadership by example. And we all know leadership when we see it, but what we don't do is enough work to educate and understand what leadership actually is. And too often people confuse the phrase leader with being someone who demonstrates leadership. Mm -hmm. Whereas we'll talk about this later, you know, too many leaders, um, you know, the three elements of what is a leader, you know, authority, the the legal authority or permission to do that, um, management, you know, people and resources, and then leadership. And leadership is actually your ability to motivate people through inspiration. And failed leaders are those who don't have leadership and they lead through their authority, which means they motivate through fear. Uh, and, you know, I've gone on since leaving the defense and particularly you guys now, now I'm doing some stuff in the political space. And it's come from this place of realizing that unfortunately in the civilian life, right the way through to those leading our country, not enough have sat down and been taken through the leadership pamphlet. And being taught to understand that, you know, leadership is connecting with people and motivating them through inspiration. You know, nine times out of 10, most of your job is going to be utilizing your authority as your responsibility to seek and accept risk and support others as opposed to your entitlement and then managing people correctly. And then there's that part where you need to step up and show leadership. And the easiest way to do that is leadership by example. But instead, you know, people think because you have rank, you have permission, position, you know, you're your email block says supervisor or says CEO or whatever, then that automatically comes with leadership qualities. Whereas in the military, you know, before we were allowed to touch a platoon of soldiers, I had to spend four years in Canberra, three years at and for one year at RMC. Before I became a captain, I had to go to do my captain's course and spend three years as a platoon commander. Before I became a major, I had to go to another course and spend so many years and getting so many reports. Like we train and assess the theoretics of leadership and then the practical application. It's actually an accessible module mm-hmm. as opposed to a, a vibe, a general feeling of how someone is doing. Hessen, you've you've jumped ahead, mate. You've answered our second question. And that's interesting you make the distinction. I I have I get the sense from that response and I'll, I'll get you to comment if I could. And and you, Ben, as well, given you both have a military background, that the understanding and application of what it is to be a leader versus applying leadership skills in the private sector. There is no one standard that everyone works to. I think even when I've asked people, what's your definition of leadership? There's so much variation to what people think that means for, for them that it, it's it's very difficult. And the only thing that I can see in the backgrounds that you gentlemen have come from is your context is the military and you've got some goals and some tasks that you need to achieve that everyone is working towards. Whereas in civilian life, 
and this isn't for every business, so I'm, I'm not trying to generalize here, but in my experience, I think we often don't set a goal or don't know what the goal or the vision is. And so how are you going to inspire someone as opposed to coerce them to get to an end point where you don't know what that end point necessarily looks like? And that opens up a whole can of worms as to what is it, what are the skills that you generally need? Now, where I'll end this is that I'm asking people more and more, what does fit for future leadership actually look like? I might reorient the second question. Ben suggested we might go rogue on this. Well, here's my off-the-cuff question. You've been in the civilian world for a little while. Do you think in the leaders that you've encountered that in the civilian context, we have fit for future leadership? No, definitely definitely not. And that's because we don't put enough time, effort, energy, and resources into doing that. You know, show me someone's yearly budget spreadsheet that shows a line that's going to be the leadership development for their people. Then also show me another line in their budget that says culture. You know, show me a line in your budget that says culture. The role of a leader or leadership is to connect people with purpose. You know, the role of a leader is to connect people with purpose. Leaders do that through inspiring them. You know, motivation is individual. Inspiration can be extrinsic or intrinsic motivation. You know, connecting people and deeply connecting those values that, that people connect with is how you actually inspire people intrinsically and extrinsically to purpose. And from all of my time, we'll jump right into this later. You know, one of the biggest realizations for me upon leaving the military and struggling through some of my um, earlier positions out in the, in the corporate world is that the military is actually one giant not-for-profit. You know, you are assessed on your outcomes as in the effects that you deliver to people and projects. In the military, it is a values-based society whereby if you achieve this outcome, but did it through stepping over everyone along the way, you know, you will be absolutely destroyed and held accountable for that because that is not what we value. Whereas if you didn't quite achieve that same value that that person who stepped over everyone else achieved, but you did so through motivating, inspiring and building relationships and building a stronger team along the way, that is the person that will be rewarded, promoted and supported, or at least that was, you know, back in my day. Whereas on the outside, you know, people, when they turn up, they get a job description, they get KPIs. You know, they don't usually get issued in most corporate spaces, a, a code of conduct that focuses on values and get assessed on how they do what they do. At the end of the day, it's the person who achieved the most sales, who achieved the most end state increments towards their KPIs. Whereas in the military, how you do what you do, the happiness, the motivation, the welfare, because everything is such a very tight word of mouth community through to the nature of the operations you do overseas, you know, hearts and minds. Leadership is hearts and minds. If you have one over someone's heart and mind, if they trust you, going back to what you were saying beforehand, Eric, when there is no end state outcome, when there is no certainty what is going on, the best team that already has a leader that has invested so much that they have the hearts and mind of their team will be able to operate the best in those conditions. You know, I have been on all sorts of operations and we'll talk through the difference between combat and career leadership later. But, you know, I've had the most amazing team go out on missions in Afghanistan and all of a sudden everything's gone to poo. You know, the, the original mission's not there. The helicopters aren't there. This helicopter's gone and all that sort of stuff. But that is when your team is actually strongest because you operate your best in uncertainty because you absolutely trust every single person you're with. And admittedly, that comes from a lot of lived experience and training and everything else beforehand. But that is true leadership. And leadership comes from top and from bottom. You know, leadership by example, I have been inspired by so many of those that I have been the assigned leader of, but have such fantastic leadership qualities. And the best part in being an actual professionally trained leader and then having that confidence in yourself, in your own leadership abilities is when you get to sit back and be led and be inspired by others and appreciate that leadership at the ultra high performance level is actually a 360 degree beast. It's a hydra of so many heads where everyone in the team is actually providing 
this collective leadership that makes that team perform to that elite level. And that's that sort of fantastic lived experience I have, you know, my last nine years of my career, but really six of them on the ground were with special forces, primarily at two commando. And I walked into my first platoon as the youngest person in that platoon. Uh, that platoon had just come back from its rotation in Afghanistan in 2010, where November platoon had lost three of their members to the helicopter crash, Tim Apple, Ben Chuck and Scott Palmer. And I'm required to be the leader of that team, you know, and you can't sit there and say, well, my, you know, email signature block says commander, you know, I have the rank. No, it's, it's performance. It's your conduct and character, your actions and attitude and allowing those who have that natural leadership to be in there and just simply, you know, pulling the strings and guiding the reins and steering the wheel when you need to and allowing that natural leadership and that beast and that ecosystem to take over and not feel that as too many leaders do who aren't trained in leadership, that others stepping up and showing natural leadership directly impacts on their power and their authority. It actually doesn't, mate, you know, they're an asset that is there to work for the team and the team is assessed on its outputs and you as the leader enabling that team to do so, connecting people with purpose is what you're there for. This idea about the training we need for our leaders, that's the bone of contention for me is that what is the most appropriate leadership training? Now, I'm not going to hang any shit on anyone who delivers leadership training, but I think what is missed and the fact that that industry is a multi-billion dollar industry across the world is I don't think we've still caught on to what are the most fundamental things that you need for good leadership in organizations. And what what I think is a block there, and I'll, I'll leave you gentlemen to comment on this if you like, is that industries in the civilian context differ so greatly and size of businesses are so different that solution for business X may be different for for the solution for business Y. And although the fundamentals don't change, there's some shit that's different in different industry contexts. I say this from working in the fisheries ag sector for the last 11 years, and I think I could write books about what I've seen of good, bad, and indifferent leadership. But if I wrote that book and you guys looked at it from a military context, you go, oh, that, that's full of that. I've, I haven't experienced that. That's crap, or they should have done this, or they should have done that. I live in a world, I think, in the civilian context that should have, would have, could have, it comes out all the time, but people never act on those things. And hindsight is always a wonderful thing. Oh, why didn't you do this? And why didn't you do that? Well, Jesus, you know, sometimes in the heat of the moment, you've got to make a decision that has some consequences. And that where I'll leave this is, I think, decision-making for leaders in civilian context, I don't think there's enough training and or exposure to how do you come up with an optimal decision in a time of stress and a time of uh, when there's not a stressor on. So um, we could go off on like multiple that. tangents here, but I'll, I'll, I'll hand back over to Ben. Ben? Oh, look, there's two things I just wanted to say about Heston's opening comments there, which were brilliant the, the one thing that i always find and heston you remember this intimately in relation to not only training but operations and that is we were always trained that the three elements of combat power was firepower maneuver and the last one's morale two are tangible and three is what yep. three is actually a concept of culture and leadership and you can throw firepower at you know applicable force in the right location you can put maneuver in place which is the tactics and and the nature of the operation and and leaders like yourself Heston and where the people go and where, when when they do whatever they do but morale on the ground Heston so do you do you think of the three elements of combat power morale is the most important Absolutely. And I'm, I'm having this conversation at the moment where, you know, we're seeing defense industry stuff around with submarines and everything else in between, whereas I engage with the veterans on the daily and the amount of 
um, Afghan combat veterans who have left our military in the last two years because they have become sick of manning borders between Queensland and New South Wales and all the rest. Capability is built on people. You can have the best equipment in the world, but you know, we've worked with other countries around the world who buy Australians to come over and be their supervisors at premium dollar, trying to train their people who have all the equipment in the, the best gold bullion can buy, but the people don't want to be there and they're not intrinsically motivated to do it. And this is it guys, you know, it's the good old Russians and Germans um, World War II scenario. Someone has to be motivated at the intrinsic level. Otherwise if you're relying solely on extrinsic motivators. It comes down to what is the greatest motivator. And too often that comes down to fear, you know, you had the what is it? You had the Russian troops running back into their own soldiers, firing at them because they were more scared of the Germans. You know, because they weren't intrinsically motivated to do that. And coming back to what you were saying um, earlier, Eric, you know, fundamentals one-on-one leadership. It comes down to connection, uh, and it comes down to purpose. And you guys, <laughs> I know Ben's used to hearing this. We keep when training people with leadership, training people what to think not how to think. Leadership is how to think, you know, back in the military context, you know, we're always required when we're delivering orders to provide task and purpose. And then we're always meant to give this commander's intent, purpose, method, and state. I then train people these days, just even in my own team. And when I did some consulting beforehand, you know, you teach before you ever give anyone a task in the civilian world, you have to also give them the purpose. And then when you get to that point, you just give them the purpose and let them go and figure out all those other tasks to join that dot. Leadership is actually about under understanding why and helping others to understand why it's the weirdest thing because people say you know generation why don't ask why blah 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 blah. the best leaders will take the time to explain to people why and sometimes you only need to explain to people why because they will then go back and foster this initiative to join all the rest of the dots themselves because what that is also then doing is realize that leadership comes down to people and people come down to motivation and motivations come down to emotions and the best leaders are they really to understand what emotionally or intrinsically motivates someone because that's the values that they believe in and then connect those values to that purpose and you're done. Every other purpose or task that person will self-identify with and the final capstone, if you want to be that leader, comes down to leadership by example. Any task or any purpose that you're having to get your people to pursue, if you if they see that you're not willing to do it self, it's done. And like Leadership 100% has to come down to you being willing to step up. When it's absolute chaos, when the team is staying back at late, as we all know, presence doesn't equal productivity, but when the going gets tough, the leader is the one who might've been sitting on the back bench the entire year, but then they come forward and they're the one there on the front line filling out that spreadsheet or kicking that can or doing whatever is needed to be done. And I remember that second point, and you just echoed it again, Heston. The strongest teams I see in the civilian world, and, and my my business focuses primarily on supporting uh, legal practices, is the teams that have what you said, leadership all around. And people don't often know, and they might be what we you would colloquialise in the military as number 51 riflemen. They might be the most junior person in the team. But I often say to them, you know, you're displaying leadership right now because what you're doing is you're managing up. What you're what you're not doing is giving your boss problems. What you're doing is offering them, offering them a solution. And, and that is actually leadership. And when you've got a team of, say, six or 10 or 12 people and you've got 12 leaders in the team, one person has what Heston said at the start, the authority. You've got 11 others who are actually leaders as well. Geez, that's a good team. Absolutely. And the only piece that has to accompany that in that upfront first of year briefing, whatever it is, is I, I have this analogy about two sets of glasses. One has the lenses of responsibility and one has the lenses of entitlement. Nearly every conversation, you know, that is going the wrong way, you bring it back to, you know, are you doing this through the lenses of responsibility? It works. You know, some people get all confused and get all worried about having 16 people in a team, like trying to lead. It's like, again, it comes back to why, why are you trying to lead to help the team? 
or are you trying to lead in order to demonstrate that you have leadership skills? Are you trying to do that for entitlement or are you trying to do that from a responsibility place? And this comes back to that whole values piece. And if people know that our team operates through the lenses of responsibility and is then able to explain to me why you're doing that through those lenses, that we're all on the same sheet of music. You know, it's very, very, very simple analogies I know and you know, life's much more complex to that. But look at every other issue we come to and look at how people bring problems to you. You know, if they're bringing them as like, hey, you know, I, I sat this afternoon in a meeting with the Minister for Veterans Affairs and every single veteran conversation I go to, I want to step up and stand up to these people that bring up all these issues and go, cool, you know, I want, I want, I need, I need, I need. But why? Tell me why. You know, there are absolutely problems we need to solve, but like there has to be some self-responsibility and there has to be some responsibility we bring into this conversation. Otherwise we sit there and what we do is we ask for things and we ask for tasks and we complete tasks and we kill all forms of initiative by going into this simple, you know, two-way street piece as opposed to this purpose piece, allowing people to lead allowing and fostering initiative. One of the favorite quotes I gave my platoon when I first took them over is I would rather rain in a stallion than kick a mule. And the only additive to that is as long as you are doing it for the right reasons and you can explain to me why you're doing that. That's the team I want. And Eric, just to throw an example of Heston back at himself. Heston, you posted a piece on LinkedIn recently, which I believe was your body cam of entering a helicopter. You're being extracted. Your team was being extracted. And I think the point of your post has nothing to do with what I'm about to say. But I actually watched that post with the phrase in my head, that is pure leadership. And I'm giving you a compliment here because what I noticed and what people probably never noticed about that who are probably listening to this podcast, but equally probably the civilians out there who see a leader in the field. What This is what I saw, Heston. You were the first one to arrive at the helicopter. You sat out the back. You made sure everyone got on. Your body cam shows you constantly looking around. Everyone, every prisoner, I think there was only one, mind you, sorry. Every dog got on board. And then who got on last? You did. And I watched that, Eric, and I said, and I'm getting a chill in my spine saying this, that is leadership. If I could anyone, if I could ask anyone to take away, regardless of the point of your of your piece there, Heston, I know it was a completely different context for you, but I watched that and I showed a few people and I said, this is what we were taught. Yeah. You get there first, you make sure everyone gets on board, everyone's safe, and then you get on yourself. And I just yeah. thought that that's something I wanted to bring up tonight. To, you probably don't even think about it. It was probably natural. Ben, I always made that point. You know, unfortunately, things like um, Once for Soldiers ruin it for me when Mel Gibson tries to do it all tough. But the, the last seat, so there, there are two positions on all the helicopters, particularly on those Chinooks where you could be on the headset. That's either at the very front um, near the pilots or it's at the very back and it's the last seat. And it's not actually usually the nicest seat sometimes because you get all the wind blowing up you and all that stuff as well, particularly when it's cold. But I always made it my point that I would always occupy that last seat because when we landed on a target, I was the first person jumping off. And, uh, you know, most of our operations were at night as well. So particularly as a physical control measure for me, being the last person onto that helicopter, because you would have also seen in that video, I'm giving hand signals of numbers to the US loadmaster there. He is counting someone. He is counting all my guys on. And then I'm counting. And then I immediately jump on the headset just to verify that he got my physical cues as well as them with the verbal cues. And that's when I know everyone is on target. Because you can imagine the worst thing for me would be for anyone to be left on target. Um, mm-hmm. That is when you know at the fundamental level you have failed as a leader. I mean, it was also a bit of an OCD myself, ensuring everyone's on board. But, you know, we went into some difficult missions. And again, this is this whole thing. I'm having this internal break being put on because we're not good in this culture about sort of talking about ourselves in a positive way. But I, one, appreciate that you took note of that. You know, my guys, some of my guys have said that to me as well. And there were some times where I wish I wasn't the first 
off target. More so from a command and control perspective, because you're kind of sort of blindsided, you're off the comms first. But um, yeah, that's that is that is leadership 101. That is the mm. fundamentals of leadership 101. And that, as you know, then that's what we're taught. Yeah. And as I mentioned, it probably was a completely natural thing for you. Yeah. I'm sure you weren't approaching the back of that Chinook going, okay, so the book says I need to be first and then I need to ensure everyone gets on, then I'll get on last. Uh, but it's just something I noticed. And again, for this podcast, I think it's important to see that as, as Leadership 101, Eric, I think it's, a, and it probably goes back to that question around adapting leadership skills to the civilian context. And I think about putting yourself at risk, ensuring your people are safe and healthy every single day, every single task they do, and then you know, you you absorb the pain for them. And I had this very conversation with someone recently about the time frame that they process a payroll, if it's impacted by a public holiday. And I remember a rule from my days in the army. And I can I swear, Eric, am I there was a rule we lived by, never fuck with a soldier's pay. Oh yeah. <laughs> never fuck <laughs> with the soldier's pay. Or their food. I, but I don't apply the food analogy to the civilian context. But yeah, yeah never yeah. fuck with a soldier's food, never fuck with a soldier's pay. So when someone said to me, oh, the public holiday is going to impact our ability to do a payroll, I said, do the damn thing early. You absorb the pain. You don't put your people in in peril because what if you, what if they have a, a, a mortgage repayment due? Yeah. You can't make that assessment on their behalf. You need to pay it early. You take the pain. That's a leadership thing. Or yeah, anyway, so I'm getting on a soapbox now. But um, really, I mean, even like Ben, we were taught you eat last. Like correct. something, you know, even when I was, uh, I finished up as a, as a major, you know, you, and you, you had, I ran the selection course. So, you know, I'd have had a hundred candidates go through and eat, then I would eat, you know, and it's not from a self-granding place. You know, everyone is looked after and you know what? And my staff knew that if there wasn't food left for me, then they had stuffed up and you get to physically check that to make sure, you know, I had a hundred trainees, you know, busting their ass on starving food deprivation and all of this. It's to make sure, you know, and through these physical um, control measures, you know, the staff actually put on more food to make sure there was definitely enough for me at the end. And who benefits? The guys in front of you, you know, that's just what it's about. And again, you can be taught that or you can do what we've just done then and actually think further through as to why, you know, stuffing with someone's pay, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, never stuff with that because they are the first things that undermine their trust. And the best form of leadership comes down to trust. So as you were saying before, Eric, when there isn't enough time to explain why there's already those connections and those bonds there that people already trust and know that, hey, if he's had to make this decision, it's because it's had to be made and there isn't enough time to explain to us why. Combat leadership, as we all know, Ben, comes down to all of that preparation beforehand. You know, very rarely are you able to achieve anywhere near that same level of performance just being dropped frog into a hot water without all of that front load training. Mm-hmm. And that comes down to people connecting, establishing trust and establish that that level of just intuitive collective mindset that you just can't, you know, we wish that we, it's almost that ESP level of operation, operational ability. Maybe the other uh, adjective is instinctive. And that, that was the answer to the question earlier, Eric, when you made that question, it, it, it's for the people you know, particularly in the world that Heston lived in, special forces, it's training. Yeah. It's doing something a thousand times in training. And then when the shit hits the fan, you know that those 1,000 run-throughs, you just do it. And that's a critical difference, I think, between the world of the military and slash um, special forces versus the civilian life in that. Uh, and this and this, and this is me not backtracking, but sort of putting context here that, in lots of civilian leadership roles, you don't have the time to train and retrain to get 
a decision right. It, it's a different it's a different training environment. So for for as much as I wish, and going back to the start of the podcast, that organisations could devote more money to leadership training, more money to appropriate leadership training, there is also that time factor and the need to uh, turn a, you know to make money. And unfortunately, you can't have managers offline practicing for scenarios that may come. And what what I think is the replacement for that in lots of ways as a proxy for the training is if you've had some leaders that have had years of experience in whatever role of leadership, you get to practice that over time. So time becomes your teacher, not necessarily a training course. And I, th- I think I would be disingenuous if I said there has to be a course that will teach you all that in a three-day, one-day package. That's not, it's yeah. not going to happen. I think it's more demonstrating examples of where good leadership happens and in a very subtle way. And as you were explaining uh, the video you saw of, of Heston being last in, that, that's also a good, the leadership lesson there is make sure your people and everything is right before you take a step and even before you make a decision. Because if you can see the bigger picture and you're standing back, it means you know you've you've got as much information as you need to make a decision at any point in time. If you were the first person onto that helicopter and then hope everyone else gets on, you're not seeing everything else that's happening. And I, I, I can understand what that means. And I, I guess you only learn the lessons of leadership once you see that in action. To get to where you got to, there were thousands of hours of training. You, you didn't just get there. This didn't just magically happen. So there's, there's a context there, I would say. I want to jump on that sort of, we're going to call it contingency planning, Eric. You know, we're saying it's so hard to pull people out of their job that has to earn a you know commercial outcome. This is where I just know through experience, again, that's all we do in the military. You know, before I ever went out, you know, I'd go out and do a four-hour mission in Afghanistan. There were seven days worth of planning. And the reason why I was so good at my job is because I sat there with a team full of the most more experienced guys, older than me, all of this. And I, you know, actually do proper war gaming, you know, tear the shreds out of this, bring someone else in. And I've already thought through about 4,000 different scenarios in my head before we're actually there on target, um, you know. And not only do we put it in an enough plan that, you know, there's this saying in the military that no plan survives HR or the first shot. Well, most of our plans did because we put a lot of effort in. But again, you're going up against other humans and you're going up against weather, up against these things that don't follow your orders. And nine times out of 10, the best then combat reactive leadership, I was able to demonstrate because of two things. One, I probably already thought through at least 60, 70 or 80% of that potential scenario beforehand. And second, as you said beforehand, I always maintain enough situational awareness of my team, of the mission, of everything else moving on. So I already knew where most of the things were and all the information was, so I could make that most informed decision. But the ability to then replicate that and, you know, stop work. Okay, today we're going to conduct a scenario as if half of the workforce can't come in for the next two weeks. What are we going to do? You know, you're going to lose a day's worth of productivity or whatever. But in and in the short term, that's not desirable from a commercial outcome. But put you up against your like-for-like competitor who's never done that. There is going to be a critical point which that, that training and that investment has unlocked these pathways, this thinking, this contingency planning Back here, they've jumped up to a commercial head start, but you are then going to power on the longer term outputs from that are so worth it. And this is where I keep trying to say to people, think about what could possibly go wrong in your workplace. Hey, the main server is down for today. What the hell are we going to do? You're going to have to pick up the phones and start doing this stuff old school. Cool. Practice it now before you have to do it in real life. Actually think through proper things that are really going to impact on the commercial outcomes, the making profit of your business. 
and schedule one a month or something like that and do it. And it might never happen, but I tell you, when it does happen, that is where you are going to hit your competitive advantage better than everyone else, blah, 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 blah. If you kind of get what I'm saying, it's this, and that takes leadership in itself in seeking and accepting risk and realizing that, hey, me investing in my people, it's also fun, different innovative sort of training, you know, might be a short-term loss, but there is a longer-term game and we have to start applying this tactical patience and providing this long-term focus to develop our people. Otherwise, our people see that profit and commercial outcomes are the purpose as opposed to them. And that's when people start to lose their way within an organization's culture. It, it's not, I don't think it's standard practice, the, the long-term view of how you develop your people. I think that is the goal, but it's not the common practice for lots of reasons. I'm not, I'm not excusing not doing that, but everyone thinks you need a course, whereas that's yeah. anyone can do in their workplace. You're training people how to think, not what to think. You don't need a course to, to mimic a disaster or just looking at, you know, what are your, what are your critical vulnerabilities in your workplace? How can you yeah. replicate to a scenario? Yeah. For, for, for the sake of those listening, I'm, I'm not and definitely not married to courses being the only way to deal with this. I've, I've, I've had a podcast where people have said, you've got other options like mentoring, coaching. There are different things you can do in the workplace that um, are not resource intensive that can get you over the line. And I, I think maybe, maybe at the most fundamental sort of uh, leadership 101 is to maybe build culture that allows that to happen. So you can, your senior people can have that conversation around how do we develop each other? How do we develop our workforce and maybe it's more of those conversations needed or less and and if if this wasn't an issue you wouldn't have business networks sprouting up all over the place you wouldn't have the amount of people talking about leadership on linkedin for example if we didn't know how to navigate in this space. And I think it, it's a it's a good, healthy place to be that people are, are now wanting to talk about this more because um, what I've seen in the past, and I think it's getting better, is the conversations are siloed. So it's happening in academia, but does that translate to the world of work all the time? And who's bridging those conversations? I don't know if that happens enough. Are we having those that are practitioners on the ground delivering leader development, leader training, coaching, mentoring, connecting in with theory, with the research and all the rest of it? it it's I, I believe it's an interesting space that needs more, more fleshing out. And again, the purpose of having these conversations is if someone could walk away with the lesson that, that Ben was talking about before or that someone listens to this and goes, right, what can we extract from how the military do leader development that would help us in a civilian context what what can we get out of that and that's cross-pollinating the best of what you might learn in a military context into this into the civilian context I'm not going to say it's always going to work but we should be doing more of it and i'm sure that it's happening all over the place i'm just talking in, in general terms here I think having said that, I think it's very important to also highlight that particularly when we go through our promotion courses and our leadership specific courses in defense, the best thing that is actually happens is you're taken away from your regular workplace. You know, the supervisor, the platoon commander, whatever it is, is taken away from their workplace and put with a group of others who are like-minded, experienced left or right of where you're at. And you're actually, you know, professionally trained to do that. And you're actually able to remove your mindset from the operational mindset, which is the immediate five meter targets. And you actually have the chance to go into that longer frame mindset, you actually have the context to go into that philosophical mindset and actually have that time to, you know, go past, you know, whatever it is, left brain or right brain, get into actually some, some deep thinking and some rumination as well. Uh, and there's so much to be said, you actually have to create that educating and learning environment, which too many people do fail. And to just rely on what I was saying beforehand and just doing OJT scenario-based training, 
that's great for training your team, but professional leadership training, you need to actually have someone go and be mentored and have that proper academia away from which they can actually disengage their mindset to focus on um, that area. We all know what it's like when you're chasing, you know, these constant tasks that keep popping up, you're only achieving 60 to 70%. But, um, you know, the, my last job was the um, head of strategy for the Special Operations Joint Task Force in Iraq when we were combating ISIS in 2017. And that was the most amazing experience for me because none of the tasks I had uh, we're allowed to come within six months of the current date. So I was dealing with how we're going to hand over, um, you know, the, the eastern and northern areas to the Peshmerga, how we're going to reposture into Syria afterwards, all this big hands, little map stuff. And as opposed to being tied up with the daily operational tasks, UAV strikes, incident report, incident report, all this sort of stuff. I was able to sit back there and enter this level of, you know, it's that marketing mindset when you actually have the ability for creativity to enter into your operational processes and practices. And it really helped me discover the mindset and the conditions that need to be made and can be made to produce even greater outcomes, making sure they still remain grounded, not in just pixie fairy dust land. But it was fascinating for me because I don't think I've ever spent my entire time in my career being able to plan something that was at least six months out in that level of meticulous detail. And it helped me really appreciate creating that pure space for people to, to learn and assimilate that information. And Heston, I won't be surprised if you say no change, but do you believe that you've adapted your leadership style in the civilian context or not? I have. The fascinating part for me, and this is where I have to be careful with these sort of conversations, is because the best enabler that I had for my own personal and professional leadership development was actually my time in special forces where I did my deployment to Afghanistan in 2012. And, you know, I did four deployments to Afghanistan. But outside of that, you know, I spent all of 2013 out of uniform, popping around Asia Pacific, conducting consular planning assistance teams, assessing embassies and head of missions on their business continuity plans, their emergency response plans. I had to do so much, even engaging with wider army that relied on my competence and character. You can imagine going back into wider army, they were waiting for me to step out of line because they wanted to cut down the perceivably arrogance of special forces. Whereas, you know, I was used to winning over people with my smiles instead of my biceps and just realizing how important that was to have that personality side of it. But to be honest, my leadership has gotten better now that I am a civilian because the biggest thing that is actually an inhibitor to the best form of leadership and most levels in the military is actually your inability to really inject that personality into it. Because again, you know, we talked about this before, before the camera, you know, service in the military is all about a collective identity as opposed to an individual identity. And I personally struggled with my own individual identity transitioning from defense. But now that I actually truly like myself and are actually happy with who I am personally, regardless of what others think, I am now the best leader here now because I'm actually the most authentic version of me. And that is the true fundamental to excellent leadership It is actually coming down to someone being an authentic person and an authentic leader because people trust authenticity. They connect with authenticity. I am here doing things because I believe what they're doing and I'm doing them for the right reasons. That is responsibility. So Heston Russell here now is a much better leader than I was ever on or any of my four deployments to Afghanistan, Iraq, everything else in between, because I'm now finally connected with who I am, what my values are, and truly understand in doing so that everyone else is exactly the same. And then going back to my job to link those people with that purpose, I know actually how to do that because I now know what does that for me even better personally. Well, thank you for that response. And I, I might, if, if it's okay with you, Ben, sort of move into the next area. And that's about, talk about the, the military and civilian context. And I, I think I might 
go to the question about critical leader capabilities. Now, I think you've flagged quite in quite some detail what you believe to be the most critical for you. But let, let me get the idea about going rogue here. What would you say are the top of leader capabilities when you are in the military context and how do they differ in the civilian context? I reckon there's some fundamentals that don't change between the two, but I reckon there are some capabilities that are more appropriate in the military context that wouldn't quite work in the civilian. And I'm, I'm coming at this as someone without a military background, so I'm just observer looking in. But let, let me go back to the question. Are there different capabilities, do you think, between the two worlds from your experience? Um, yes, I think absolutely. And I think it comes back to our previous conversation with regards to those three elements of what makes up a leader, authority, management, and leadership. And for me, it comes down to, I think, competence, character, and compassion. Um, first and foremost, you know, in order to be a good leader, you have to be good at your job. Um, you know, if you're not good at your job and you're just a nice guy, then that'll only get you so far. Um, and that's that strength of character and particularly that character piece. You know, people connect with leaders because of who they are and what they do, you know. You can only connect with someone who's just good at their job for so long. If they treat you like shit, you know, then nine times out of 10, once there's nothing good to do, they're just they're treating you like shit and you're going to move away from them. The compassion piece is such a huge part for me. And this is where like, again, in the military, you are going to get a better performance from someone because they know that you care about them because they know that you understand about them. Whereas in the civilian context, all I keep seeing is the ability for people to be effective leaders because they essentially hold something over someone. They hold their pay packet. They hold their performance. They hold that authority piece over them. And people can be so much more easily motivated through what they have the potential to lose as opposed to you know what they truly value and what makes them feel valued. Too often, again, I see that reliance on leadership based on authority authority as opposed to leaders who value leadership, which is what was primarily that focus, particularly at that tactical level during most of my experiences in the military. You've brought up values and as has been through this whole conversation, do you believe that in the civilian world, values-based leadership is a common thing or an uncommon thing? I think it's, I think it's uncommon. I think it's uncommonly not actually quantified. So for example, Back in the military days, everyone will receive a, a monthly, for example, platoon commander's notebook. And in that are your KPIs, your performance outcomes. And then on the other side of it, as a part of that assessment template, are the values. Let's say courage, initiative, teamwork, and respect. So you've got your performance, which are your KPIs, and you've got your conduct, how you do what you do, what uh, based on your values over here. Actually assessing people against those values provides that framework for assessing how people do what they do, particularly when you then go to performance manage someone, you know, we can easily performance manage someone by saying, Hey, you know, you didn't meet this KPI. But when you're trying to say to someone, Hey, like, we just don't like you. You're not a good dude. You're not a cultural fit. Like how are you quantifying that? If you're not actually linking it back to measurable levels of standards of performance based against values, like we don't, without having that construct, we keep having these philosophical conversations. Whereas again, in the military, I never had to have conversations that became that personally heated because it was a matter of difference of opinion. It's like, Hey, you were assessed to, you know, cut the line, do this, walk over this person, actually take credit for this person's work when it wasn't yours. Like that goes against this value, this value, and this value. Like, what do you have to comment on that? Like you don't. And particularly then you develop that to such a intrinsic level of, you know, 
personal motivation that more merit is provided to that conduct, those values-based performances than it is to the KPIs. Because anyone can be trained to do those KPIs. And this goes back to the last two years of 18 months of my career running the selection course. We would break down people from former Olympians and iron men and women um, through to, you know, really experienced operational soldiers and officers down to their core fundamentals of who they are and what they stand for and what makes them tick when no one is watching, when there's no food, when there is no mission, all that good stuff. And we pick them on their personal attributes and those personal values because we can then train them with the best equipment, with the best people, with the best resources in the world to achieve whatever we want, knowing that we have who we want. That last comment I just wanted to draw upon in a little bit in asking, did you find that as a result that there were people that were probably physically and mentally strong and could could achieve the selection course outcomes, but their values just weren't in the right space. They just wouldn't, they wouldn't get a ticket. Well, the most incredible thing about the selection courses are 85 to 90% of the people who, who come off a selection course withdraw at own request. They fill out their own form when they withdraw themselves. What the selection course is designed to do is to remove all of those five love languages, those ways you feel value, valued, you know, make people feel isolated, surrounded with uncertainty and make them doubt their own purpose. Make them doubt the reasons why they are there. Ask them what I really value and what I really need to feel valued in this circumstance. Am I going to do that? Is it worth pushing through that for this? Absolutely. And the first to drop are those who have never actually been, you know, unfortunately, my former Olympian and former Ironman were some of the first to drop because they'd never been pushed outside their own physical limitations beforehand. You know, the next to drop were those who were there for the wrong reasons. They were there because they wanted to, you know, have that beret and lord it over other people. They were there because they wanted to show it to others. There's a point when you become so tired, so hungry, and so physically fatigued with no one else around you that you realize no one else is there to provide you with that affirmation or with that feedback. And that's when you're left going, hey, I don't actually deep down in the coldest depths of my heart want to do this. And they withdraw it of own course. But then there are those who are there for that deep intrinsic purpose of they believe in why they want to do that. They want to be the very best version of themselves from a place of responsibility, not from a place of entitlement. We would have to stop activities at the end because people would pick up equipment beyond their capability and dislocate a shoulder and keep going because they were just at that level of incredible resilience that you just realize, cool, we need to stop this or these people are going to break limbs before they actually stop. And that is someone I can train to do anything. Just moving on to some of our final questions, Heston, and we have the same question for every single podcast guest. It's chocolate. Chocolate. Chocolate? Okay, move on. Uh, That's been Heston Russell. (laughs) The old uh, chestnut nature versus nurture. Are leaders born or made? What's the Heston Russell position on this? I wasn't a born leader. The true essence of someone being a good leader with natural leadership capabilities for me comes down to that authenticity piece you've heard of beforehand. You know, the better people are born and raised to be confident in who they are uh, for the right reasons, the better natural leadership they are going to have because when you're not worrying about the uncertainty of yourself and you actually can understand compassion, how that relates to other, the better you're going to be a a good leader because it's coming down to connection and motivating and inspiring people. Leaders, proper leaders that are well-rounded in leadership, authority and management are trained. Uh, And I, and also then not only trained academically, but trained in their own lived experience. You know, I'm the first person to say that I was only able to achieve my level of insight and experience and expertise in leadership, given the circumstances I was provided. 
you know, I have been in the right place in the right time on so many combat missions, on so many other deployments in my own career. Uh, you know, there have been some better leaders than me who just never literally had those opportunities to have those same lived experiences. But for me, leaders and high performance and elite level of leaders, you know, they, they, are, they are trained. There are fantastic people who are born with natural leadership. But as we said beforehand, there is still that academic piece up front that when we're dealing with the margins of a few percentages up in that, you know, higher echelon of performance. Yeah, absolutely. One of the podcasts I did, one of the gentlemen that I was speaking to said, beware the person that wants to be a leader. They're the ones that maybe are not the ones that you should train for leadership as opposed to those that are built over time. When he said what he said, that got me thinking a little bit. And given your response here, and I've had this debate with Ben, I'm, I'm still in a 50-50 mindset that there are some people that you meet, or I'll backtrack, there are some people I've met in my travels and I've only been on this earth for almost 50 years, but I'm not quite 50, but almost getting to 50 years that I've met some people with some skill sets that are such exceptionally good leaders and either they're in leadership roles or they're not leaders, but they do all the things that you would tick off as being what good leadership is. They're authentic, they're good human beings, they inspire you to be better but I've also met people like yourself and, and I'm, I'm a classic introverted person. I think over time I've had opportunities to, to apply the trade of leadership and some things I've got right and some things I haven't. And over time, I, th I think I was made into where I'm at, I'm at today. And I, I, I don't believe myself that it's one extreme or the other. So I don't think they're all born, but I don't think they're all made either. Because one thing that keeps coming back at me when people answer this question is leadership is also a choice. You can choose not to be a leader, but the day you choose to be a leader, you, you choose all of the shit that goes with leadership and and leadership is not always a a pleasant pathway and sometimes you've got to make decisions that don't make everybody happy and I, I think for me the cut of a good leader is when when you take the mindset that you're being of service to other people you, you'll get it right 99% of the time and the times that you do stuff up I would hope people own the stuff ups that I, I tend to ask that in the one-on-one -on -one conversations. And I, I ask Ben and Ben, like everyone else. And I, I think you might answer the same way is that own the shit that went wrong and learn from it and move on. But I've also met leaders that will never admit a mistake. They'll find other people to blame for the error and never put it on themselves. And when you talk about authenticity, I often am skeptical of the person that looks to the environment to blame something in the system rather than look to themselves. I think good leadership comes from looking within, not trying to blame sort of without. Absolutely. And I think the key part for me, this is where I have this philosophical difficulty with a board of a leaders born or made is that all those leaders that are good leaders that occur naturally. And like for me, that they're, they're made through the circumstances, of their environment and what their environment has forced them to do is actually develop emotional intelligence. And that's what we're talking about here. A leader's ability to actually understand empathetically others, you know, good leaders are those, you know, that they understand the impacts of their decisions. They might not, or they don't pander to those impacts, but they know those impacts and not just how they impact themselves, but nine times out of 10, they know those impacts and prioritize knowing those impacts on other people before themselves. And you touched on one really important point, Eric, that I've missed beforehand is good leaders realize that leadership is a service. Bad leaders think that leadership is about others serving them. And that is this, I've seen it in the military context. It happens somewhere around the rank of major and lieutenant colonel. And that's the conditions of those environment around it, because the environment also creates, can turn good leaders into bad leaders and all, 
all these other um, predicaments, but the best leaders are those who maintain knowing that responsibility piece, that leadership is their ability to serve and support others. And where I have a slight disagreement with you, Eric, is that I don't think that all leaders or a lot of leaders actually choose to lead. It just happens. Um, And again, they don't go looking for it. And you don't have to be given permission to lead. You just need to do what is right for the right reasons. And you'd be fascinated how often you're actually leading by example in doing that, particularly in today's current climate. How how dare you, sir? How dare you disagree (laughs) with the podcast host? I'm... I'm shocked. I'm, 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 I'm... <laughs> no, hell no. That That's brilliant. Hey, listen, before we go, mate, there's a couple of things and I, I do want to hand over to Ben. So I know he wants to say a couple of things, but on your website, there's a quote a tri- that you've attributed, obviously to your, your old man, be good at your job and be a good person. There's a lot in that. I, I really like that. That resonated with me. When you meet people that are expert in their job, they don't tend to worry about the doing of the doing. They want to get to the higher order elements that you need, especially when you're talking about leadership. And this thing about being a good person doesn't get much more basic than that. If you're a bastard, people will pick up on that. And when you talk about authenticity, I think most human beings, but I think Aussies in particular, our our bullshit radar is quite attuned. And when you know someone's full of shit, you just feel it and you don't want to engage. So really like that quote. Your your, your dad's got um got some good there's some good there's some good insight in that quote. Well, I'd, I'd love to quickly talk about that. And a lot of people, you know, <laughs> Simon Sernick does it in a much more, you know, professional way, a much more uh, consumed way. He, you would hear him. He talks about, we did some work with SEAL Team 6 and they talk about the selection phase. They talk about, you know, we pick people over their competence, being good at their job and also trust. So being good at your job is the competence and being a good person is the trust. And in the military context, it all comes down to trust. And my dad served 20 years in the military and got out in 1995 when we moved up to Brisbane. And he did a grand total of one trip to Butterworth during that entire time as an infantry officer. And then he got back in when I was in grade 10. So in the year 2000, and he had taken the pension and all that. So he got out as a major and got back in what that few years later, and he was never going to be promoted again. You know, he settled on his career uh, rank being major. And he then subsequently went on to two deployments to Afghanistan, two deployments to Iraq before I even went on my first deployment overseas. And every person person I ever ran into who had served with my dad during that time was always saying that your dad is, you know, absolutely awesome at his job and an absolutely awesome person. And he never had to worry about any of those career aspirations or anything. He worried about doing the job and doing it in a way that it could be best achieved because he understood people and he didn't have this careerist approach and he got to actually enjoy his job and the reasons why he did his job. And we all know those people who are awesome at their job, but are assholes. Uh, and again, when there's no job to be done, they're just assholes. And those people who are great people, but terrible at their job. And you can be a good person for so long, but when being terrible at your job starts to, you know, really impact on those others who have to pick up, then, you know, it doesn't really help the team. And, you know, it's actually kind of selfish. You need to get better at your job. So what I learned is, you know, being good at your job and be a good person, you actually have to work twice as hard. You literally do. For most people, until you get to the place where that actually comes authentically for you. And that's coming back to that purpose and that responsibility and that reason why you're doing those things. And again, I really found a number of key points within my personal career, particularly after I completed my SOTG deployment in Afghanistan 2012. And you know, I had I had an awesome career, guys. Like I really had so many opportunities. And I should be arrogant. I should be so many of those other special forces people that, you know, Ben, I'm sure you've met plenty of them, you know, think that they're God's gift or whatever. 
whatever, but I know that my emotional intelligence was developed by being fat, being unpopular, being unsuccessful, downing every single thing that I ever thought could potentially be a leadership quality for me in my growing up in going through ad for an RMC and all of that and realizing how many other people think like that and have been through that and maybe going through that and how amazing it would have been to have someone with my expertise, my experience, my, you know, even just the look of what it, you know, I thought was, it was a leader to actually come and be a good person, not just being good at their job and the impact that would have had on me in my own personal and professional development as well. So that's where I really feel that that growing into that emotional intelligence has been actually the best characteristic that I've been able to take from my military career. Cause I'm able to, you know, through our training, pick about any task to, you know, do and be good at my job. But if you, if you can only start with being a good person, again, you said it beforehand with the um, selection stuff, you know, you can then train to be good at your job, but just know that you can't get through life being just a good person. Yeah, that that quote is, it's so simple. It can be pulled apart in so many different directions. Um, but I really just think it is, you know, it's still these even today, you know, the fundamentals of, of, of what I abide by. And particularly when, you know, those times come where there isn't enough time to make people feel warm and fuzzy and making those decisions. That doesn't then mean you can just be good at your job. It still means in the back of your head, hey, just think about how you do what you do. I want to pick up on a point you made at the very end uh, of your piece about servant leadership, Heston. And it's an interesting contrast because I look back at my military career, which was significantly shorter than yours. So my time was mid-95 to I actually got out when you joined in 2000 and early 2003. I actually felt that when I, because I, I believe myself to be a fairly natural servant leader, I've always had this view of being, and even in my own business and the leadership roles I've had in, in the civilian world, very much a servant leader around ensuring the people who work for me have got everything they need, they're looked after, checked in, the whole lot, everything they need to get their job done. I sort of, I've always felt servant leadership is the way, but I felt back in my day that servant leadership was not well regarded. And in fact, I would get negative feedback from my superior officers saying, you put too much attention on ensuring your soldiers are looked after. So much so that I probably, in the contrast of, of good good at job, good at you know being a good person, I was probably, um, I was aiming to be one of which was the latter. I actually felt that culturally, that was a significant gap for me and a gap that I couldn't jump. So I actually exited. Exactly. Uh, and I've actually found that my leadership style is far better suited to the civilian environment as a result. Because people in the civilian environment do not expect their leaders to be servant leaders at all. It's almost like you exceed their expectation immediately. Uh, and as we know, you know, and I was in a similar boat to you, I, I, my first platoon command role, I was 19. I didn't go through ad for first. I mean, I, I had a 47-year-old platoon sergeant who, you know, I said to him on day one, I don't know any, I, yeah. need, your, I need your help. I was vulnerable from day one. Uh, and that individual to this day is still a good friend of mine. Anyway, I make that point because I was so totally focused on servant leadership that I think that perhaps the the competence side may have struggled. So I, I, that for me was was such a gap that I actually exited the army. Caring too much, and that brings its own heavy heart. You know, I some of the biggest mistakes, some of the biggest lessons I've learned the hard way throughout my career are actually exactly that, Ben. I often 
you know, sort of cared too much and actually brought so much onto my plate, particularly when I then progressed in some of the administrative roles outside of a direct command role. Sometimes, you know, it's very easy for that style of leadership to attract those people who are then, you know, want you to help them for their own entitlement. You actually start to, what I say, breed selfish people. Uh, and I definitely know that there was some time during my years as a platoon commander that I actually over provided for my guys to a point where I actually provided, produced some pretty selfish people. And I actually mm. had to go back and just realize that it's, it's that, it's that graduating scale. It's not easy. You can't just solely be good at your job and good at your person. There are just percentages left, right and center. And I think the key part, you know, the culture is a huge part and the context and, you know, the, the perception of the servant leader or just actually, you know, leading is it. But there's probably one last leadership piece that I, I want to throw out here and my career has taught me. And that is this, this courage piece, you know, leaders at the end of the day have to be those who are willing to step up and be, if not the most courageous in those situations. And I have been blessed in my life to have faced so much combat. You know, I've you know, been able to do all the good stuff on the movies. And um, then, as you guys might have seen this last two years, I haven't been required to do anything physically courageous, but I have had to draw on the biggest reservoirs and depths of courage that I never knew that I had. And that's really this moral courage piece. You know, I have no issues with physical courage. I will face anything from a physical threat, but, but moral courage, when you enter into that realm of worrying what people will think about you, how this will impact upon your family, worrying about those things that potentially will undermine those those values that you stand by, putting your hand up, putting your head up above the parapet. That is the hardest level. And for any people who are listening to this, and you know, it's such a great place to be in, Ben, when those people are, you know, too heavy hearted, when they care too much, they too are too much of a servant leader. The one thing for me is then to just to remember that that role of that leader is to then put their hand up and stand up when the wrong thing is being done. And as opposed to what many servant leaders do, and that is go along with what everyone else is doing because you're trying to pander to the people you're trying to support them. That is when it is your time to step up and demonstrate that leadership by example and demonstrate that moral courage, which is harder to train than any form of physical courage. And I have been in combat and I have done all those good things. And that is where a true leader is formed. When everyone else, when all the cool kids and all those people that you want to trust you and affirm who you are at the foundation level, want to go in one direction, but you know, because you understand the reason why you understand that purpose and you're there for the true and authentic reasons of responsibility, not entitlement to stand up and demonstrate that moral courage. That is where true leaders are revealed and they don't look like, you know, the broad jawed and square chested i got those the wrong way around but whatever they are the the real leaders and that is the real leadership quality and that only comes from a place of someone being so in tune with who they are what needs to be done and why it needs to be done here here Eston, that was great thank you uh before we go can you give us a bit of an overview of what you do with veteran support force please yeah for sure so veteran support force was born out of successfully campaigning for the royal commission into defense and veteran suicide uh, at the end of 2020 i sort of got to my lowest point in my own mental health where i contemplated my own suicide and through that actually realized the culmination of what was the failed transition process and also how i'd allowed it to fail so i set up a social media brand that was called voice of a veteran that literally was an identity to allow me to feel comfortable with having conversations that didn't fit the mold of a special forces officer with medals and everything else in between and allowed me to have vulnerable conversations and actually finally start to be authentic and as a part of that it helped me to realize that these conversations on veterans mental health and the suicide issues had gone so far beyond what was being proposed as national commissioner with a lack of accountability and all these other things that i started campaigning for with other 
others and achieve the Royal Commission. So Veteran Support Force is an organization born out of the responsibility to appreciate we've brought about the next two and a half years of a Royal Commission that is potentially going to be such a huge triggering point an area of vulnerability that actually needs to harness um, the opportunities this provides for cultural change, but also provide support to those who are feeling affected by it and needs help supporting with the Royal Commission as well. So I have a fantastic team of directors and um, nearly 200 volunteers whose sole purpose is to support veterans and families during the conduct of the Royal Commission at the community level, supporting, linking people in with services, supporting and helping people write their submissions, just proactively putting good mental health messages out there and trying to link in and tie in other ex-service organisations and people into supporting veterans and families during this time. Uh, and this organization, BSF, literally has uh, our constitution linked to the duration of the Royal Commission. We are here as a task for purpose um, organization, um, not to just be another ex-service organization. So if anyone wants to find out more, uh, you can go to vsf.org.au. Um, and that is my main effort uh, outside of a few other things, but that's the primary focus. I'll put the uh, link up in the podcast description, mate. That, that's that's uh, well worth um, sharing. Heston, thank you for your time, mate. This is another uh, interesting deep dive into the world of uh, leadership from uh, multiple contexts. And I have to say thank you for adding to the, uh, the body of work that I'm trying to put together along with Ben's help to try and get people to listen in and pick out some nuggets of, of wisdom that might help them out because uh, the, uh, the thing about having a conversation is it's good to agree, but it's also great to disagree. Um, mate, thank you for your time. No, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. And thank you for you guys doing this. And I just think that, sorry, that one last point there is that there is no right solution to this. Ben would hate the expression, but you know, this is all about putting those tools in your kit bag that you might never use or you might need. And, you know, I am still learning leadership. And like I said, I've only learned the best about myself when I've been required to now demonstrate that moral courage and actually learn and understand who I am. So if anyone who was, you know, back in my days wishing that they could be a leader, you know, it's not going to happen overnight. It's not going to happen by listening to this podcast. It's going to be happening. You can actually help yourself by listening to every one of your guys' episodes and pulling out one little nugget from every single person maybe and just adding that to your book, adding that to your kit bag and then seeing what happens when you're presented with those situations down the road. It's such a journey and that's the most exciting part. And as long as you're doing it for the right reasons, that journey is going to be fun. And the only way I'd extend that, Eric, is A, Heston spot on, B, not every, not every everything you do will be right. It's going to be as many wrongs. But the key thing really is just to look at those wrongs and learn from them and not not be discouraged. That's an absolute clangers when it comes to a leadership uh, role. And uh, I look back at them and go, I would never let myself do that again. That's it. The best uh, lessons in life are often learning what not to do. And I have learned more from watching others make mistakes and also my own mistakes. And that is the true test of a leader. You're allowed to make mistakes and failing is such fantastic growth. But where you're starting to fail is where you where it goes beyond failure is when you make those same mistakes or you repeat other people's mistakes. That's when you're not being good enough at your job, essentially. So for those listening, I've been speaking to Heston Russell. Heston, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thanks again. And as always, thank you to my co-host, Ben Deverson. Ben, thank you for your time. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, Heston. Great chat, mate. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And we'll catch everyone on the next podcast.